Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of True Blue Crime Investigates Podcast. My name is Dan and as always I will be your host for this episode. In one week I will be headed down to CrimeCon 2023 in Orlando. I hope to meet some of the fans of my podcast and build an even larger listener base as I enter the last quarter of 2023. It's been an amazing first three and a half months and I look forward to seeing how much this podcast can grow before 2024. Thank you for all the support, but let's quick cover the business side of things. If you'd like to get updates about what this and the other podcasts are up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email me directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon or PayPal. Links to make donations are on the website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. Any donation level helps, and will help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast, a thank-you message from the host, and some cool True Blue Crime merch. For no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much, and without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime Investigates. Family disappearances can create some of the most controversial true crime stories. For example, when the McStay family went missing from California in 2010, internet sleuths went crazy with theories of witness protection programs, the family running off to Mexico, and countless others. When their bodies were discovered three years later in a shallow grave in the desert, the sad truth that they had been murdered by a family friend and business partner was finally revealed. But if you go back in time and look at those message boards from the time the family was missing, You'll find people that swear the family was in Mexico, a theory based on a grainy video image of a family roughly matching McStay's walking across the U.S.-Mexico border near where the family vehicle is located. While the theory made sense, there was no concrete evidence of what had happened, and while I hoped that this theory was correct, in the end, that's all it was, a theory and proved to be wrong. Another family went missing from Oklahoma the year prior to the McStay mystery. A family of three disappeared under some very strange circumstances, and once again, theories about their disappearance were all over the map. This is the case of the Jameson family disappearance. While both the McStays and the Jamesons disappeared as a family, their cases are very different in terms of the pre-disappearance behavior. In the case of the McStay family, it appeared to be life as normal for the four members, and then out of nowhere and with no explanation, the family vanished into thin air. When they were found three years later, this sudden disappearance was explained by the senseless killing of the family of four due to a family friend and business partner's need to settle some gambling debts. The Jameson family disappearance looks a lot different from the very start. Although the family went missing in 2009, their story begins when Bobby Jameson was a teenager. Bobby's father, Bob, owned a gas station and often required his son to work at the gas station. It was reported he even pulled Bobby out of school to work shifts. According to Bobby, his father never paid him for his work, but promised to either give him the business when he was older, or give him half the proceeds if he ever sold the gas station. There is not a lot of information about what Bobby did between his teenage years and 2003, but in 2003, it was reported that he was in a car accident and hurt his back, and suffered chronic back pain that prevented him from gaining employment. The family lived off the insurance payout and disability checks after 2003. According to one article, the family was involved in another car accident in 2005 that they went to civil court over. There definitely seemed to be a lot of suggestions on 
the different websites and message boards that this family was, I think even one of the law enforcement investigators called them scammers. Uh, they were people that lived within the civil courts suing people, and we are going to see a couple more lawsuits in 2009, the year they went missing. But it appeared they had received a couple rather large insurance payouts from these accidents. And it started getting me thinking, when you have accidents that are almost scheduled, I think 2003, 2005, I wouldn't be surprised if somewhere in there there's an accident from 2007. It's as if they're getting in an accident every couple of years and living off these insurance payouts. And this is often the case, especially with these back and neck injury cases, where you can have somebody that slams on the brakes real quick, purposely causing an accident where they're hit from behind. And you do see this. I know there was a huge issue with this going on in a couple states in the, in the South. I think Florida was a big one where there was a lot of insurance fraud going on where people were purposely getting in accidents. In some cases, people working together to get in accidents to then sue the insurance companies and, and make big money. It definitely appears like that might have been the case with, I always try not to speak ill of anybody who's deceased, especially under suspicious circumstances, but oftentimes reporting the facts, and the facts are that this family seemed to get a lot of accidents, they seemed to sue a lot of insurance companies, they seemed to sue a lot of people in 2009, more so than the average American family is going to be involved in accidents or lawsuits. And I think this is why a lot of the stuff surrounding this family is going to be mysterious because you've got this abnormal behavior going on, a lifestyle most people don't live, and this is the lifestyle they're living before they go missing. And in 2009, the very litigious couple pulled their six-year-old daughter Madison out of kindergarten at the local school and were in the process of suing the school for unknown reasons. Earlier that year, they had taken Bob Jamison, Bobby's father, to court over the sale of the gas station. Bob had sold it as his health was failing, and despite willing most of his estate to Madison, Bobby and his wife Sherry Lynn sued for Bobby's half of the sale that he claimed was promised him. And again, I didn't have the legal documents in front of me. I'm going off of different reports from different articles written about this case. But the one article made it seem as if the proceeds from this gas station and some other stuff was going to all be willed to Madison. It's going to take a certain type of person to sue the estate of your father when he's willing stuff to your daughter so that you can get your hands on the money and it's not going to go to your daughter. At least that's the way I understood it. I, I could be mistaken. There's a possibility that the articles that I found were reporting the financial situation differently than what it was in real life. But again, they're they're taking Bob to court and I think it was only something like $10,000. And I'm not meaning that $10,000 isn't a lot of money. It, it is to a lot of people. But it's not as if this was a million dollar gas station and, and they're suing for 500000 I could understand if Bobby worked for a good chunk of time at this gas station, was promised either the gas station itself or half the proceeds, and then he ends up getting stiffed for half a million dollars. I, I definitely understand a lawsuit for that, but again, I, most places is reported that he was suing for something like $10,000, what he believed he was owed from this gas station. And, and to me, again, it just adds another layer to that 
they'll sue for just about anything. And, and there was no information about what they were suing the school for, just that they pulled their daughter out, which makes me believe, again, if you're looking at lawsuits for car accidents in 2003 and 2005, their daughter literally had just started kindergarten. This was October of the year that she was in kindergarten. She had just started kindergarten in September. And to me, that reeks of somebody who put their daughter in the schools just to wait for a moment in which they felt they had some type of a lawsuit against the school, pulled her out, and then started suing the school. So again, I don't like to speak ill of the deceased, but this definitely seems like a family that was living in a world of finding ways to get money out of situations that normal families wouldn't pursue. And continuing their civil court parade, the couple filed for a restraining order against Bob, claiming he said he was going to kill them. And now this is something I don't know that I've even talked about on on my main podcast. I don't know that we've covered any of these restraining orders. A court order, restraining order, called different things in different states. Uh, In Minnesota, you have your order for protection and you have harassment orders. And these are civil orders issued by a judge that prevent a person from showing up at this person's house, prevents them from communicating with them, whatever it might be. And in most cases, what happens is you can walk in in Minnesota and file a restraining order against any other person, anybody. And there's an application process. And on that piece of paper, you can write whatever you want. Should it be true? Absolutely. But is it always true? No, there's really no checks and balances. Now, if you want this order to stand and you've got police reports of domestic situations, of of threats, where it's been documented that this person has texted you telling you that they're going to kill you, chance of getting a court order are going to be much higher because as you go before the judge, there will be a point in which if the other person wants to fight the restraining order, Basically, both of you will show up in court, there'll be a hearing, and you have to present evidence to the judge as to what you put in your narrative being accurate and truthful. And if it's not, the judge can get rid of the restraining order. A lot of the times they issue a temporary one called an ex parte order that stands until there's a hearing. And this is done out of an abundance of safety in case the stuff that is written in the order for protection application is accurate the court doesn't want to wait weeks until you have this hearing and so they'll issue one immediately but that one only stands until there's this hearing and then the judge can decide whether it's going to stand for a year or two or longer or whether they're going to get rid of it so there's a lot of reporting out there about this restraining order and about all this stuff in this restraining order application about how bob supposedly had ties to the mexican cartels and Bob ran drugs through the gas station and he had hired hitmen and all this kind of stuff. And so when you read these articles, unfortunately, I think some journalists take what's in this restraining order as gospel and they'll put it out there that there's a good chance that Bob could have had something to do with the disappearance of this family because of all this stuff in the restraining order. But in reality, again, nothing that I know of in that restraining order was ever proven in a court of law. And we're going to find out there's a lot of mental health issues going on with Bobby and Sherry Lynn. So if they wrote out this stuff in the restraining order, especially while they're having a mental health episode, there's a chance that none of this is even true. And Bob 
is in, uh, the reason he sold the gas station is in failing health. He's actually going to pass away shortly after the family goes missing, and he's in a long-term care facility at the time. So as a matter of him being this severe threat to the family that's written about in a lot of the articles, I don't see it. Uh, there's family members that will say that Bob was not the monster that the, the, the Bobby and Sherry Lynn made him out to be. And again, that falls back on if this gas station, if we're talking about lawsuits and the millions of dollars, then I could see some type of an argument for Bob Jameson hiring somebody to, to kill the family so that they don't uh, receive the inheritance or however you want to look at it. But again, he's wanting to will everything to his granddaughter so it would make no sense that he would try to harm this family when in reality he's trying to support this granddaughter of his and as i mentioned before bobby and sherry lynn had a history of mental health disorders to include bobby having depression and sherry lynn having bipolar disorder and she was known to go off her medication for the disorder there were rumors of drug use by the couple but according to the research police found no evidence of drug use after the disappearance I'm not going to go down any of the deep rabbit holes that come up when we talk about drug use. I will briefly brush on it why I don't think that it's a part of this case, but again, it's it's part of the story, so I'm, I'm mentioning it. Even without possible drug use by Bobby and Sherry Lynn, the couple exhibited some extremely bizarre behavior before they disappeared. They were both considered deeply religious, with Sherry Lynn said to be extremely religious, but had recently come to believe that their house was haunted by demons and those demons visited Madison and talked to them through their daughter. Bobby had talked with a local preacher about his concerns about his family being haunted by these demons and even asked the religious man about obtaining holy bullets that could be used to kill the demons and spirits. While the family lived in a nice home, they made plans to buy a 40-acre plot of land in a remote area of Oklahoma that is filled with rugged and different difficult terrain. They had a large shipping container on the property that they told friends they wanted to convert to an off-grid residence so they could live away from everyone else. On October 8, 2009, the family packed their truck with stuff from their house, loaded up Madison and their dog, and made the drive to this remote area near Red Oak, Oklahoma. The family had specifically requested the real estate agent for the property not meet them at the site as they wanted to check it out alone. They parked on a barren pad of land in the middle of the remote wilderness. They left their cell phones, personal belongings, their dog, and $32,000 in cash in the truck and walked into the wilderness. A man living in a house on the mountain saw the family arrive, and his eyewitness account is that the family was alone and he didn't see anyone else go in the woods after the family left the clearing. Because Madison had been pulled out of school and neither Bobby or Sherry Lynn had regular employment, and they were estranged from most family and friends, no one noticed the family was missing for over a week. It was common for the family to disappear for up to a week at a time, so law enforcement wasn't even aware of the missing family until eight days later when some off-road motorcyclists found the family's abandoned truck in the clearing. The truck was locked and the family dog was near death from starvation and dehydration, but was still alive. This was October in Oklahoma, and the temperatures the week before had been in the 40s at night, so the dog was never in danger of overheating, but it did present dangers of hypothermia to anyone exposed to the cold temperatures for too long. The family appeared to have left the truck without jackets or any cold weather attire, as it appeared they were going for a day hike that only required temperate condition appropriate clothing. 
An immediate search of the area using first responders and volunteers failed to locate the family or any evidence of what had happened to them. The vehicle had a GPS device in it and law enforcement found the truck had traveled from a different remote location before being parked in the clearing. Tire tracks and shoe prints in that area indicated activity that was consistent with the GPS data, but again, no evidence of the family was located during the search. Given the family's desire to start a new life, away from people, some people theorized the Jamesons abandoned the truck and set off for a new life, possibly with new identities. But that didn't explain leaving the cash behind, something that was likely intended to be used to purchase property at the very least would be a good startup money for a new life. And so this cash becomes kind of a central theme and we're going to talk about a couple of the theories coming up here. The $32,000 in cash, I honestly believe it was for the purchase of this 40 acre property. I never found how much this property was what the asking price was for this property, but I did find an article that said this $32,000 in cash was about half of what Bobby had received in an insurance payout for one of the accidents. And so while some people point to this cash and say this is why they believe it's drugs, this is why they believe there's something nefarious going on here, this family has paranoia, they've got some definite trust issues, especially seemingly with whether it be government and I assume as a result of that banks. So it's very possible that this cash was set aside to potentially purchase this property so that they don't have a mortgage payment because there was other information. Basically, Sherry Lynn had a son from a previous marriage. Uh, I think his name was Colton. And he had gone to live with his father, I want to say it was the previous summer of 2009. And as a result, while Bobby and Sherry Lynn were watching Colton, they were getting child support payments from Colton's father. But once he went to live with his father, those child support payments stopped and the Jamesons couldn't afford the mortgage on their home and living expenses, everyday expenses, whatever, however you want to say it because of this lack of income, all they had was their disability checks and living off these insurance payouts. So I think that this $32,000 in cash was a way for them to turn one of these insurance settlements or at least half of the money from it into a mortgage-free situation. They were gonna live out of this shipping container on their own 40 acres. And as a result, they could probably live for pretty cheap considering they wouldn't have a mortgage, they wouldn't be paying much in taxes, guessing they probably wouldn't even be declaring this as a residence, to be honest. So I think this $32,000, it gets a lot of talk while people are discussing this disappearance was actually more related to the purchase of this property. And I think that other GPS data was likely them trying to locate this actual 40 acres that they were going to buy and they drove to one location probably got out looked at the gps realized weren't as close as they had hoped to be or there wasn't good access to where they wanted to walk from that location and then drove to the second clearing and decided to try to access it from the second clearing so while a lot of stuff looks nefarious the the two different locations the thirty two thousand dollars in cash to me it just speaks of somebody showing up looking to make a life change potentially purchase this property 
and I, I honestly believe they were up there checking out the area for the purchase of this property. And other theories soon emerged that evolved everything from religious cults, white supremacist groups, and drug cartels. And as I mentioned before, there's no evidence other than hearsay and some speculation, so I'm not going to spend too much time talking about these theories. We've mentioned the drug theory before, but the Jameson's vehicles and house were searched by law enforcement after they went missing, and no evidence of drug use was located. And from my experience as a police officer, drug users will always have some evidence of drug use left behind, especially if they didn't plan to fully abandon everything. And what I mean when I say that is, if you just froze a drug user's life, remove them from their house and their vehicle, and put them somewhere else, and then allowed police officers to go in and search their house and their car, you're gonna find things like paraphernalia, you're gonna find things like residue on tinfoil wrappers, whatever it might be. Drug users use on a regular basis, they need the paraphernalia, and in this case, meth was a popular drug that was referenced in this case. And that's because it could account for some of the paranoia and hallucinations that are experienced by Bobby and Sherry Lynn in the months before they went missing. So a lot of people said they thought they were involved in meth. This is rural Oklahoma. Meth is a big issue here. So a lot of people just drew that connection and said they're having mental health issues that are that mimic heavy meth use. And this is the right area of the country for them to be involved in heavy meth use. But... As I said before, meth addicts are never far away from the delivery device for their drugs, and the most common way for people to use meth is like a glass bubble pipe. So I would assume if they used meth, there would have been at least some paraphernalia left behind in either the vehicle or the residence. And, and again, it's not as if they were ready for somebody to come search their vehicle or search their house. From all accounts, it doesn't appear like they planned on going missing. So taking that snapshot of their life, there's a good chance that a proper search of their house or their vehicles, if they're drug users, is going to locate some evidence of drug use. It's, again, not as if you're telling them, hey, your house is going to be searched tomorrow. Make sure you throw away all your drug paraphernalia. Your vehicle is going to be searched. Make sure you get rid of all the drug paraphernalia out of there. If they're users, that paraphernalia likely would have been located in the home or the vehicle. And because it wasn't, I really do believe that drug use is not part of this. I, I think it's purely a mental health issue. I think it's purely related to the family's desire to, to get away. And the white supremacist theory mainly came from a roommate the family took on shortly before they disappeared. And this was because the family was getting ready to move and they had agreed to let a man stay with them in exchange for his help packing and moving items because Bobby's back prevented him from doing heavy lifting. According to the friends of Sherry Lynn, this man was a member of a white supremacist group, and one day he sat down next to Sherry Lynn and told her that he was disgusted by her because she was part Native American. Sherry Lynn responded by getting a gun from another room and ordering the man out of the house. When he didn't leave at first, she reportedly fired shots into the floor by his feet, and then the man left. After law enforcement heard about this from Sherry Lynn's friend, they tracked down the man, but he had a solid alibi and was not considered involved in their disappearance. And this is the other tough thing is we're getting a lot of this information third hand from people who heard it from Sherry Lynn, who is bipolar and most likely off of her medication. So anything that she's telling her friends, that's open to interpretation of whether or not it's the truth. 
and then what that friend hears and then passes on to law enforcement, there's a chance that stuff can get lost in translation there. It's more likely once they track down this guy, they got a more straight up answer of what actually happened that day. And they, once again, he has an alibi and they ruled him out. So it wasn't as if he had a grudge against them and was had made threats against them or, or was coming back to avenge the fact he got kicked out in any way. So that was where I believe a lot of the white supremacist angle came from, was from this, this guy that was helping them move out. And the other thing to remember is when it comes to the financial situation, this is 2009. This is a couple years into the burst housing bubble and the recession. So if they're not able to make ends meet on this house that they own, there's a good chance that whatever they owe on this house, because many people are underwater in their mortgages, was more than what they could sell this house for. So a lot of people were just abandoning their homes. They stopped paying the mortgages on them. They let them go into foreclosure. There's a good chance that's what was going on here too. And as I mentioned, it would be much cheaper for them to stockpile some money, not make mortgage payments for several months until they're basically gonna get foreclosed. And then their other living option is the shipping container on this property that they're gonna buy for themselves. And the final theory out there is that the family had this deep religious belief and there was evidence they purchased and were reading the Satanic Bible, which led to rumors the family was killed as part of a religious cult they had become involved with. And Sherry Lynn was known to spray paint graffiti with religious sayings on items during her manic episodes, but was also known to have read the Satanic Bible and referenced Satanic teachings as well. And so that's like in the case here, they had the shipping container on their property. Apparently a few of Sherry Lynn's cats had died. So she'd spray painted on the side of the shipping container, something to the effect of people have killed two of my cats and witches don't like it when their cats are killed. And that's a direct reference, she used witches. So this led many people to believe that she was maybe involved in some form of witchcraft. And that I think led to a lot of this religious cult, satanic cult talk. And for over three years, the rumors and speculations about what happened to the family continued to circulate amongst the community. Then in November of 2013, deer hunters located the remains of two adults and a child about three miles from the abandoned vehicle. A positive identification was made that the remains found were that of the Jameson family. They were found laying together face down in the dirt. The investigators said the area the bodies were found was searched back in 2009. The area was covered in leaves and the bodies would have been hard to locate. And while the bodies are three miles from the truck as the crow flies, they are roughly seven miles when traveled over the uneven terrain and bends in the area. The entire area is roughly 50 square miles of mostly untamed wilderness, which is why anyone finding the three bodies at all is considered a long shot. And while I've never been to this part of the country, whenever I see a case like this where we're talking about a family missing in kind of a remote area, I go to good old friend Google and search the maps of the area and the topographical maps of the area. This is the, I guess you kind of consider it the very southwest edge of the, the Ozark range. And so you're talking about some pretty significant rough terrain, pretty significant rough terrain. You're talking mature growth forest and shrubs and undergrowth and everything and this is this is as untamed a wilderness as you're going to find in oklahoma kind of the same as if you've been in southwest missouri 
or any of that area. This this is this is what this area is like. So three people, a lot of people say it should be easy to find three bodies. Well, when you don't know where they are, and again, three miles from anywhere is a lot of area to cover in and of itself. And, but if you're talking about seven miles uh, along these trails, seven miles into the, the middle of this complete and utter remote wilderness, that's going to be very difficult for any searchers to locate. It's it's the proverbial needle in the haystack to find three human-sized bodies in this very, very remote, very densely forested area. And we also have to consider that when the initial search was going on, these bodies were likely probably into some phases of decomposition, but not quite there. It's October. You're talking about a lot of leaf fall and fresh cover in the area that could have potentially covered these bodies up and depending on the temperatures you may or may not get a smell of decomposition in the area and this is going to sound morbid but it's usually after a couple years after the bodies have skeletonized and been predated on by scavengers in the area that these bones are going to get moved around and these bleach white bones are actually going to stick out against the backdrop of the forest. A lot of people go into the woods wearing neutral colors that kind of blend into the environment. So unless they're wearing, you know, blaze orange, they're going out hunting, or if fluorescent colors were in, if they're wearing something like that, maybe there's a chance that their bodies are discovered back in 2009. I don't have what they were wearing at the time, but in looking at family photos, they didn't appear to be a very flashy family. And it was said that Bobby was kind of an outdoorsman type of a guy, so most of those people that would fit my description as well. When I go out in the woods, I'm not wearing a bunch of flashy clothing. I'm likely wearing some some neutral nature kind of colored stuff. I'm not going out in camouflage. Those days are well behind me, but but I'm not going out again wearing something that's super bright that if unfortunately something happened to me there's a good chance if I was in a remote area like this that my body might never be found and the autopsy results were confusing to say the least and this is mainly because Bobby was found to have a bullet-sized hole in the back of his skull but the autopsy states that this is not a bullet hole and the pathologists believe it to be a work of natural predation there are plenty of animals in the area with a bite that could cause this type of damage post-mortem and I'm putting my faith in this pathologist that they wouldn't rule out a gunshot wound unless they had good reason to. And and what I mean by that is gunshot wounds can be pretty distinct compared to predation marks. And if this body really hasn't been disturbed, especially skulls, there should be other indicators within that skull or within the area the skull is recovered that would indicate that this is a gunshot wound versus a bite and when I mean there's other animals that could do this this area of Oklahoma does see things such as mountain lions large bobcats creatures that their bite and their teeth can actually penetrate a human skull so there is a chance again that that a creature came along bit into Bobby's skull and left this hole in his skull that looks like a gunshot wound but the pathologist is saying it isn't and so this leaves us with the question of how did this family die? And there are really only a few theories that make sense. The first is that the family died from exposure. As mentioned before, the temperatures for the day after the family went missing were around 40 degrees. 
And whenever I get a case of a missing family, especially one off into the wilderness, I go back and I look at the historical weather. And so I was able to find that the day that they went missing, the daily temps prior to that and that day had been in the 70s, like the mid 70s for the days leading up to October 8th. And so this is obviously, if you're going hiking in a forest and your temperatures are mid 70s, you're going to be potentially, depending on how rugged the terrain is, wearing maybe jeans and a t-shirt or hiking pants and a t-shirt or shorts and a t-shirt, something along those lines. I mean, that's your pretty typical mid-70s hiking weather. But right after October 8th in the historical record, basically the night of October 8th, there was a rapid 30-degree drop in temperature. So the, the temperatures went from the 70s, and it looked like it was rainy and windy, and just the, the temperature just plummeted down into the 40s. And the difference between 70 and sunny and 40 and rainy and windy, it, it it's definitely feels like more than 30 degrees and it's going to affect the body greatly more than a, a, your typical it's not as if it just went from 70 to 40 with no wind or rain and if the family was out hiking and hadn't been paying attention to the weather it would have been easy for them to not only get lost and disoriented in the dense forest and hills but navigating while dealing with wind and rain would have added to the difficulty their lack of appropriate clothing would have made them very susceptible to hypothermia, which could explain their deaths. When I was a police officer, we had a couple different county parks in our city that have a lot of hiking trails on them. And at least a couple times, usually at this time of the year, September, October area, people are getting out before the snow and the cold hits in Minnesota, and they don't realize how quickly it gets dark at night. It can be pretty easy to see you head out after dinner 6 30 or 7 o'clock at night and you start your hike and you get to the apex of your hike and you realize it's starting to get dark and by the time you try to figure your way back on these trails if you don't know the park very well the trails can be confusing they crisscross each other and and one of these parks was only i want to say maybe four or five square miles maybe a tenth of the size of this remote area and we would have people every fall getting lost in there at night and to the point that the county park finally had to put up all these different you are here type signs indicating to people where they were and that was not so much that they could find their way out but it was so that when they got lost and called 911 that the park rangers could drive to the location they were at uh, you're at marker 8a or something like that and they knew where marker 8a was so they could drive right there because before that they would have people saying i'm on a trail there's three other trails leading away from this one i don't know where i'm at that, and that's at a well-marked county park so if you're talking about a remote wilderness in october again it's the time of the year where it gets dark really fast I don't know if we know an exact time that they arrived, but if they had already messed around at one stop location and driven to this next one, and it's said that there was this abandoned, broken down truck that was in this clearing, and there was some of the graffiti that was believed to have been done by Sherry Lynn on this truck because it was religious in nature, and that's kind of what she did. So if they're taking the time to go to this other clearing, she's taking the time to write graffiti on this vehicle, minutes and hours of the day are ticking away so if they head off and if they're seven miles into the woods this is where their bodies are found 
it's going to take about they're traveling with a six-year-old so i'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt and tell say that they're traveling at two miles an hour so if they walk in let's say four miles that's at least two hours without breaks without stops so if they start to get lost or disoriented two to three hours into their hike it could already be getting dark and now if you go the wrong way now you're another couple hours and you're four miles away five miles away you continue on that path now you end up seven miles away and you're in the middle of the night it's raining it's windy and it's 40 degrees and this this is where i think the exposure idea comes in is that even though people said that bobby was an experienced outdoorsman if you haven't been to an area before it is very easy to get turned around these are hilly densely forested areas you can't see for a long distance there's probably not a whole lot of great landmarks that you're going to see and even if there are if you haven't been to the area before you could actually end up confusing yourselves using landmarks that you saw thinking you had passed it and you hadn't or that you were sure you passed something and you're sure you're headed the right way and really you're not now the only thing that this theory doesn't explain is the family dying together and i say that because victims of hypothermia often shed their clothing during these advanced stages of hypothermia and begin to wander and the family found together is an oddity for an exposure case unless they were huddled for warmth fell asleep and succumbed to the conditions after slipping in the into an unconscious state if they had been found in somewhat close proximity but like 100 yards from each other in stages of undress i would 100 percent go with this was likely an exposure incident caused by hypothermia case closed but the fact that they're all laying face down in the dirt is the only part for me that makes me question whether or not this theory stands up in the end because it's just not very common for families to die together now there was a family out in california a few years back there was a, a husband a wife and their infant child and their dog were all found deceased by yosemite national park and they were found together and then there was a big debate whether it was it would have been really hot that day and they had no water left in this water bladder they'd brought along and so they thought maybe the family had taken water out of a local creek that was potentially infested with this toxic algae i guess and whether the toxic algae could have caused them to all basically instantly die together and from what i could find because that case intrigued me i think i heard about it on a podcast from what i could find when they did all the end results they, they came out with the idea that the family just died of dehydration and, and hyperthermia and they died together which is again something that's not common in exposure cases whether it be this hypo or hyperthermia or dehydration it's usually one person the, the last surviving person will wander off to try to get help and the family's found apart from each other but being that that was a case that there is no foul play indicated and the family was all found together and, and even the dog makes me think you do have examples of exposure cases where the family does perish together in one location and so it is i guess possible and then if you reference that to this there's no report about the amount of water brought with the family for the hike as dehydration can also kill in situations such as this people underestimate how much water a body needs when exerting energy to move and stay warm in adverse conditions and on rough terrain 
And if they didn't bring enough water, it's possible for them to die from dehydration while trying to find their way out. So again, this would match what happened with the California couple. I used to do a lot of winter camping uh, back when I was a, a Boy Scout and Eagle Scout. I would do winter hikes, winter snowshoeing, winter cross-country skiing, and, and staying out either in a tent or making a snow shelter. And they would always harp on us about how much water you needed to drink while you're exerting yourself because you don't think about it when it's five below or, or 10 degrees and you're you're moving around constantly that you are exerting the same amount of energy as if it's 75 degrees out and you're in shorts and a t-shirt. And so people don't think about water intake during cold temperature situations and how the body can dehydrate. And so again, if they're lost and wandering the wilderness, eventually their body runs out of, of energy, runs out of water. And if they didn't plan ahead, like they didn't about bringing coats or jackets or anything like that, there's a good chance they didn't bring water and they could have met the same fate as the family from California, which again, that one was proven not to have anything to do with foul play. Family found together, died of dehydration, exposure, in that case, hyperthermia, whereas this could be a situation of, of dying together from hypothermia and dehydration. But then the only other explanation would be foul play. And it's possible the family came across someone in the woods that day that decided to kill the family for any number of unknown reasons. While some people also believe this points to someone meeting the family at the location and forcing them into the woods to kill them, which follows along with either the father had something to do with this, the religious cult, the white supremacist, the drug cartel angle, all that kind of stuff. Everybody points to this potential quote-unquote hit on the family, somebody meeting them there and then forcing them into the woods to kill them. The location of the bodies makes this less likely. It also goes against what eyewitness said about him not seeing anyone else go into the woods with or after the family. However, if we choose to discount the eyewitness statement for a moment and think if someone wanted to kill the Jamesons, they could have done it at the clearing or even a half mile or a mile down into the woods. To force March two adults and a six-year-old seven miles into the woods to kill them would take around four hours, and that's without stops, and that seems like a monumental effort to commit a murder. This is relying on the fact, let's say somebody has a gun and is forcing this family to walk for seven miles on this uneven terrain. I don't know why you would continue to push this for seven miles. Then you have to believe on top of that that they're likely going to be getting killed later in the day and now this person has to find their way back out seven miles which is going to take them probably three hours to get back out in perfect conditions and we're talking about a night of rain and wind. I think anybody who was planning to kill this family again they could have done it at the clearing and if they had and they would have had access to the vehicle then why isn't the cash missing? Why isn't there more stuff going on with this vehicle? And then if you do decide to walk the family this seven miles and then decide to kill them there, why would you go to that amount of effort to try to hide the family and leave the truck behind? And why wouldn't you bury the bodies? They probably wouldn't have been found if they, the bodies were buried. So the entire plan seems to be mostly illogical. Again, the bodies were only found because they were on the surface and because animals had predated them and the bodies had skeletonized and, and left behind bones on the surface of the ground. If these bodies had been buried even a foot or two deep, there's 
yes, there probably would have still been some predations and animals might have dug up the bodies at some point. But if you're going through this effort to, and this is, I'm talking about a targeted kill. If you're, if you're setting out to kill this family and trying to make them disappear, why would you leave the truck there then? Why would you not bury the bodies? Because if you were able to get rid of that truck or move it to a different location, that changes where anybody's looking for this family and they're probably never found. So if it's a targeted kill, like some people believe it is, I just don't see the evidence that supports that, the, the, the behavior of the killer. So if foul play was involved, it was much more likely that the family stumbled across someone who decided to end the lives of two adults and a child and then walked out of the wilderness. There are more exits from this area than the clearing where the vehicle is parked, so just because the homeowner didn't see anyone else enter or exit the woods by the truck, it doesn't mean someone didn't enter and leave from another area. And so basically you have to believe, again, this is kind of like the Moore Murray case, all this strange behavior is going on right around the time of the disappearance, and then you have to believe that somebody comes along at the moment that the family or in the Morris case, goes missing, and they, they come across a killer. You, you just have to put together all this chaos lines up with them getting killed at that moment in time. Or in this case, you can say there's a lot of chaos, some bad decision-making, and maybe they die of exposure and everything else just makes it look like it's more nefarious than it is. However, there are a couple strange outliers in this case that I do need to mention. When they were loading the truck, Sherry Lynn is seen with a brown briefcase that has never been located. So while it's possible this was dropped off somewhere between the house and the clearing, there are some who think the briefcase is the key to this whole thing. So some people believe there's a possibility that there's something in that briefcase, they met with somebody maybe at the other GPS location, and things went south. And this, this goes along with the either the religious cult or the drug cartel theories that people put out there. Additionally, an 11-page hate note was found in the truck written from Sherry Linda Bobby, outlining all the reasons she hated him and their marriage. Some friends would later say this was just Sherry Lynn's way of expressing her feelings when she was suffering from her bipolar disorder and it helped her collect her thoughts, but others believe it points to significant marital issues between the couple that may have led to a murder-suicide. Which brings me to the final outlier. The family had access to guns, as supported by the story of Sherry Lynn threatening the roommate with a gun and shooting the floor by his feet. Sherry Lynn was said to always carry a 22 caliber handgun with her, but that gun was not found in the truck or on any of the bodies, so what happened to it? Originally, some people theorized she killed Bobby by shooting him in the back of the head with a gun, then killed Madison, and then herself. But with no gun recovered at the scene, that seems an unlikely scenario. This case, as I mentioned before, like the Maura Murray, is filled with chaotic events that led up to people going missing. That chaos makes it difficult to fully understand what was going on at the time the person went missing and creates dozens of rabbit holes of possibility. While I honestly believe the family decided to check out the 40 acres they planned to buy with the cash in the truck and set out on foot into the unknown terrain just before a change in the weather that cost them their lives, there are others who stand by their idea that something criminal happened to the family. While the investigators state this is still an open investigation, there's no indication it will be solved in the near future. This is why I, I pick some of these cases to cover. They're difficult because there isn't closure. There, there isn't a solid answer. There's a lot of speculation. I try to not go down any of the deeper rabbit holes that exist out there and just present 
different theories and, and possibilities that people have come up with and then offer both the reasons why that could be possible and the reasons why I believe law enforcement hasn't ruled that to be the cause yet. Again, honestly, I think the family wandered off. I think the, the change in weather, the lack of planning for the change in weather and the distance from the truck being seven miles indicates the family got lost and succumbed to the elements. But there are other people who will swear that there's more to this story than that because of all the other stuff that's going on. And, and I always respect everybody's opinions. Again, this is one of those things that if they ever do find what actually happened here, the probably message boards filled with people that are right, message boards filled with people that are wrong. I may be right, I may be wrong for my take on the podcast, but I think it's worth talking about and hopefully someday somebody will come forward and, and there'll be some information that will bring some closure to this case. But that is the story of the Jameson family. Thank you guys for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at TrueBlueCrimeProductions. So that's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Goodbye.